welcome to the Cinematologist podcast. I'm Dario Linares, and of course, down the line, we have my good friend, Dr. Neil Fox. Neil, really good to see you. You too, mate. You too. How are you doing? I'm very, very well. Excellent. Fact, what can I tell you? You know, it's. Um, I feel like when you have these sort of feelings and, uh, you know, contentment and just relaxation, Every, I feel like we come on an awful lot and decry the state of the, the world and, uh, you know, checking our privilege, to, but but still moaning about this, that and the other. But yeah, I just think that the weight of the term has kind of lifted now. I've had a lot more time to get back into getting healthy and getting in shape. I'm sort of exercising regularly, walking, tennis a couple of times a week. I haven't had a drink for like a month. and I just feel in myself a lot better at I think I was sort of, when the, the term was at its heaviest, I think I was sort of using alcohol a little bit too much to sort of self-medicate and unwind at the end of the day, and uh, I just wasn't feeling it at all. And um, yeah, so um, feeling good sort of in myself, so and that's helping with the, the mental aspect as well. But I'm not going to go on too much about that because, uh, you know, this is not a fitness guru podcast, and I can, I can feel our listeners rolling their eyes out there in the ether. But um, how about you? How are you doing? similar really yeah I mean it's nice to hear that I think you know I think our listeners do they they want to know that it's not all always doom and gloom and you know and yeah I feel the same I was talking to someone the other day about um and I'm going to name drop Laura Mulvey um about uh this thing called paradise syndrome where you everything's too good to be true you're just convinced that something is coming around the corner so Beth and I obviously moved into this house in Falmouth and just feeling like something bad must be coming because it feels really good at the moment. You know, we love living here. We love the house. The kids are well. Life is good. And then it's like, well, something bad is coming. And it feels weird after a sort of challenging year to be in that position. But it's important to try and enjoy it when it's there and sort of carry those feelings. But yeah, so I think that's, I think that's, it's just nice to hear. So yeah, I'm, I'm doing all right. I'm, work is chaotic, but life is good. Yeah, I mean, the only disappointment is the the fact that we're not in the same room, which obviously you had some car issues and various other issues. But it's one of those things we we crack on and we're here on, you know, online. And we've both seen quite a bit of cinema. And um, I think after the last episode, which was a, a long time in the making, a lot of work, it's nice to have one of our regular debriefs about a couple of films or, you know, deep dives maybe is more accurate about films that we've seen recently and we've both seen quite a bit it's quite a lot sort of streaming and in the cinemas at the moment that's kind of worth catching sort of prize prize winning films from last year out at at the cinema in the european art house sense festival sense of winning prizes so it's been nice to catch up with them both at the cinema and at home i do have a story about a complete uh, schoolboy error in terms of uh, trying to get to the cinema yesterday but I'm going to save that for the bonus so uh, if anybody wants to hear my travails of trying to get to the cinema on a Sunday afternoon they can uh, they can tune into the bonus and just on that as well just to welcome we've got a, a new Patreon member Connor Bullen thanks very much Connor for joining us at, at the 450 membership so you've got a tape bag winging your way as soon as you pr- get, give us your address uh, but thanks again to you and to all our, our Patreon subscribers who are continuing to support the podcast but yeah it's good to it's good to talk even though we're not in the same room absolutely yeah so that's how that's how strange isn't it life is 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 so good i did i didn't even acknowledge the fact that i had a whole trip cancelled because of someone smashing my wing mirror off the side of my van outside the outside the house last week so that's probably a good sign but yeah it's really disappointing to not not be doing this face to face uh hopefully it won't be too long before that happens again but uh, yeah, it's it is nice to just be able to reflect on on some films, and particularly for me because I think one of the films I saw in the cinema, which I think is a rarity, I literally cannot remember the last time I was in a cinema. So that feels nice to be able to to reflect on that. And I was I was as I was leaving the film, I was like, when was I last in a cinema? So and I, I just actually couldn't remember. So yeah, really excited to to do that, and yeah, to talk talk about a couple of films which were kind of on the radar from last year, but are event are sort of here. And weirdly, just they both played at Cannes and won at Cannes, and you know, sort of seen them just as the new Cannes ramps up, which t- tells you how long it still takes for certain films to to filter through from their first festival appearance. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, not to keep our listeners in suspense, well, if you've seen the show notes for the show, you know what films we're talking about. So, we're going to talk about Godland and first of all, Close, and I think. 
just watching these films as an overview before we start and a couple of other films including the the eight mountains which i'm going to write about in the newsletter because i know you haven't seen that one yet so yeah we're going to stick to these two today that we both have seen yeah it's funny because they really are stories about men and boys (laughs) they are about white male relationships and particularly with close i think the context of socialization and the pressures that i can bring in terms of what we understand of what masculinity is in terms of how it's you know how it's socialized into us as men and then godland i think takes a much more metaphysical religious view or puts it through that lens but there's still i think kind of interesting things about what masculinity is in a historical sense in in that movie and then the i mean i think you're going to love the eight mountains i think actually it's my probably my favorite out, out of the three just to sort of put that caveat there so it'd be interesting to see what you you make of that but these two these two films we both enjoyed and felt were interesting to talk about and and yeah I mean I don't know if you if you have the same sort of sense of it thinking about the two films in connection with each other yeah you mentioned that the other day and um after you'd sort of seen Godland you sort of sent me a message and I was I've been thinking about it and I watched close last night so I was thinking about about those connections and they definitely feel they definitely feel there. It's hard, isn't it? Because in the sense that they are, yeah, films about white men. Um, but but what I felt they both did was take what, in both cases, have been stories that have been told many many times, and through the both the kind of the writing and the performances, I thought justified going back. And there was so much nuance in those relationships that the films are centrally about. And the legacies of those relationships that I, you know, I, I kind of had that feeling coming out of both being like, you know, that you could easily say, oh, it's another film about white men's problems, but they both get at, at some of the things that still have not been sufficiently addressed and still cause so many problems in terms of male relationships. You know, it's <laughs> it's not like the the things that these films are about have been solved. So yeah, I thought they were both really interesting, and then yeah, that just that I, I what I thought was really interesting was the dynamics and how small moments can alter those relationships, and how we as men are fundamentally unprepared for dealing with that and resolving that. I think was really interesting. Yeah, no, I, I agree totally with with that, and that's why I, I, I did find them interesting because I think both of them actually could have gone down a certain route that you would have gone, yeah, I've seen this before and yeah, I know what's happening here and I know what the outcome is is going to be. And and neither of them did. I think Close is particularly, you could make that argument about Close probably even more so because it looks like it's going to be one film and then something happens and it and it never goes to where it, you might expect. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. But I, yeah, I like what you said there in terms of that sense of it's easy to come out of, of films like this, and like I said, there's there's a sort of uh, there seems to be a cycle of films again that are going back to the sort of male experience, or and and it's not even, it, you know, you can you could quite simply and easily say both of these films in some ways are are coming of age, but every in, 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 I, I hate that phrase because like almost every film with a child in it is coming of age. It's just like it's just par for the territory, you know what I mean. Um, you know, because of the, the sort of narrative structures. Yeah, aren't we always coming of age? Yeah, you know, which I think is interesting, and it's because it's a, it's a genre yeah, term of some it? kind of age, anyway. Well, exactly. You know, like we're com- we're coming of our forties and fifties, and dealing with all of the the learned experiences that we have to navigate in order to try and live healthily in that in that time. So, but I can see I can see the the generic relationship between that and 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 sort of films that, that that do a certain thing but yeah it was interesting when you sort of because when you mentioned that they were related and i knew that close was a kind of more traditionally badged coming of age movie i thought back about godland and thought well yeah it's it's it is you know because of the central protagonist age being and and just not just like the physical age but like yeah the the experiential age of that person is—it's a huge awakening. It's that—it's—it is that it's almost a more of an awakening than the religious awakening that they've had in order to enter the priesthood, which is, I think, really fascinating. And I think the connection for me it kind of reiterated my interest in being able to talk about men in film without an automatic reaction of 
oh God, it's just another film about men, you know, like a hero film or an action film that's just about men doing men shit, you know what I mean? Or conversely, it's just another movie about how shitty men are, you know, toxic masculinity, men in crisis and all of that kind of stuff. Or these three positions, the third one, and the third one being that here's a film that is going to be didactically progressive about how men should be. I think it's really hard to not fall into one of those three kinds of representations as a reaction to the kind of quote-unquote discourse about masculinity being in crisis. And, and, and it's what's really interesting, I mean, and you know, you know this because, you know, you know me, but like this is what my dissertation was about 20, 20 years ago. So it's not as if this is a, a new thing in the last sort of four or five years. I think it's it's been kind of amplified obviously because of, you know, th- things like social media, but everything has been amp- amplified because of social media. It's always it's always been there, but there seems to be now, you know, a much more clear pocket of, or ecosystem of problematic masculine subjectivity that is leaking across from places where, where before the social media it would have been quite obscure and difficult to find, but now it's leaking into the mainstream an awful lot more. And, you know, society culture online and off offline and the commentaria and and you know social policy and and all of that kind of thing and education and and familial structures haven't found a way to talk about it let alone deal with it yeah what's been interesting of the things that i've read about both these films no one's mentioned the fact that it's another film about white men and it feels that they've both almost kind of subliminally responded to the challenge of the last few years which is like if you're going to tell these stories don't do what you've said, you know, like don't just rehash, don't just find ways to make these important stories and themes resonant and and not feel like it's just taking up space with the same old crap. And I think both these films do that. And I think as a result have been really well received. Like no one's saying that we don't want these films. What people are saying, rightly so, is we don't want a thousand films, 990 of which are just the same old self-navel-gazing, self-pitying stuff. And I think that's that was really refreshing, was being able to think, oh, actually, yeah, they they seem to be responding in terms of the aesthetic demands and the kind of thematic kind of nuances of, of a time where just trolling out the same old crap is, is no longer acceptable. And that's great because, yeah, that, you know, good movies about all subjects are really important. And I think that there has, we have gone through a period where certainly the, the, the kind of the art house and the mainstream drama have have neglected that and sort of been sort of coasting for a while. So it's, it was, I think, it feels like a resurgence in in the right kinds of films. If that, without being too, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the, I think probably maybe the problem lies for for people who are looking at this in the round and the film industry in the round might say, and I have some th- sympathy with this, that both the films that we're going to see today are prize winners at film festivals. So it's just kind of like more stories about boys and men winning prizes and that feeds into also you know what is what gets released what get distributed what is commissioned what can you see and the discrepancy in equality of opportunity really in terms of female filmmakers being able to tell or you know filmmakers of color being able to tell stories that get out there and that I have a lot of sympathy with but I think I think in this conversation we're just talking about the idea of of the representation because we you know we're happy and we're happy to cover that other subject and we have done in the past quite a lot haven't we so shall i start with close i think we'll proceed that if we're going to give a spoiler we'll let you know but we kind of, i think our audience particularly like to watch the films before they listen to us talk um so there may be some spoilers in there apologies if it does spoil it but it, any of the big ones will will let you know so yeah, this is directed by Lucas Don in the follow-up to Girl from 2018. Have you seen that, Neil? Have you seen Girl? No, this is the first of his I'd seen. I don't think I've seen it, but I can't quite remember. I'm going to have to go back and revisit. And as you said, it won the it won the Grand Prix in Cannes, which is the, the second prize. And it's the story of two 13-year-old boys, Leo and Remy, uh, played by Eden Dambreen and Gustav De Wehler. Uh, I think you pronounce that. And they're kind of inseparable friends in a uh, in a French parish, let, let, let's say. You know, it's a rural area. And what's interesting at the beginning of the film that, that it represents their relationship as deeply intimate and 
sensitively affectionate for for one another there that there is no sort of rough and tumble in terms of the the way that they act with each other that there's a lot of um, physical intimacy and the, the way that that shot is their relationship to the space and each other and the camera is very very close up in fact close you know extreme close up is used throughout the film uh, particularly focusing on the face of Leo who's got this very androgynous face let's let's say uh, which i think that the the camera plays on quite a lot so in the very first scene that you see they're doing the things that boys do which is sort of play acting this war game scenario they're in this kind of disused abandoned building which they're using as a kind of bunker as it were and you feel this sort of claustrophobia and darkness but then this is immediately contrasted by dynamic tracking shots of them running through the fields fields of flowers Leo's parents actually work on a flower farm um, and that kind of ties into the sort of sensitivity of these two these two male characters these two young male characters they sleep in the same bed together and without any real sort of comment or protest from the parents nobody's sort of making any nobody's criticizing for them that or looking at that as a as a problematic thing and and in fact Remy's parents kind of accept Leo as a, as a sort of surrogate son so this carefree summer ends quite early on in the in the film and they start middle school and it's clear they initially kind of cling to each other for security in dealing with this new environment particularly because the hierarchies of power and you know the sort of need to self-define come quite quickly into force as soon as they go to this school and then there's this key scene where Leo and Remy are, are talking with a group of girls who quiz them, asking the question quite po- pointedly, are you two together? You know, are you two a couple? And Leo rejects this, you know, offhand. He's quite defensive about it. And then Remy stays almost silent and doesn't, doesn't make a comment on it at all. As the film then progresses, you see Leo trying to kind of distance himself from Remy this comment that these girls have made has been a the triggering point for that. But then also you you get the straightforward scenes in the playground of, you know, a little bit of bullying about the fact that these two are together. And they're not, they are slightly outsider-ish, you know, they're not engaging in the much more male initiation playground antics. Uh, Remy, for example, is a, is a musician, you know, plays the, is it the oboe or the clarinet? And there's this very sort of emotional scene of Leo watching Remy play the clarinet, um, which is sort of played very much for its emotional resonance about their relationship, I think. So Leo looks to distance himself by, he joins the hockey team and tries to make friends with sort of the, the, some of the other boys. But there's this one moment when Leo fails to meet up with Remy, I think, before school one day. And it's like the first time, I mean, they've been distancing each other for a little while, but this one moment causes... Remy to kind of confront Leo and they get into a fight in the school and Remy actually kind of has a kind of major meltdown you know what I mean he gets really hysterical has to be separated off this is the part where there is a spoiler so if if you don't want to know what happens next then then just uh, you know maybe fast forward a little bit but they they go on a school trip which Remy isn't on you know he doesn't turn up for it and then when they come back from this school trip it turns out that Remy has committed suicide so the rest of the film then is Leo playing out his uh, reaction to this, which is obviously incredibly emotional, emotional, but wrapped with guilt because he feels like he's caused or been, you know, uh, at, at least partially to blame for, for Remy committing suicide. And he, he redevelops his relationship with Remy's mother as they both work through the grief of of what's happened. And I think, yeah, just just to round out there and give you a chance to speak now, because that was a fairly long monologue, I think that the the interesting part for me in terms of the structure of the film and why it's not a a, a typical generic coming-of-age story is it could have easily fallen into the story that you have seen a lot before, where there is an outsider of some kind who then deals with that that self-identity and that outsiderism, you know, whether it's to do with sexuality or whatever, and dealing with bullying and dealing with the school and with family and sort of coming through that. It doesn't do that. Yeah, and and, and that the, the particular moment of the suicide changes the film quite dramatically into the second half and makes it a much more interesting watch, I think. Anyway, over to you, Neil. What did you what did you make of it? Yeah, I really liked really liked it. Um yeah, it, it's interesting that that pivotal moment does sort of shift the film but 
you feel it in the first half, you know, like the, in terms of whose point of view it is and where you're likely to end up. And what the film, I think, does really well is that you're never sure, you're never really sure what is going to shift and how the shift is going to take place. You know, that you you spend more time with Leo in his life than you do with Remy, you know, and any any time with Remy is sort of is spent with Leo attached. So you kind of, you, you're aware that it's kind of Leo's coming of age story. But what's, I think, really well done is how, yeah, the film sort of creates the distance between the two by favoring Leo, you know, and sort of putting you in that, in his, in his shoes much more so that, yeah, that, that you really feel those, those, those moments where the two friends start to separate and it's always sort of making you question how you feel about their relationship. Like you say, like that nothing's ever commented on in the film. So it leaves it to you. Like, how do you feel about their relationship and, and what happens as it as it progresses through school and the kind of the the everyday cruelties of children start to pile up and and how they both separately respond to that you know and you do get the impression that leo is masking something with the ice hockey trying desperately to find something which he feels uncomfortable about with remy which is why the blame that he puts on himself feels really authentic you can just see how he blames himself because he's been making these decisions which have taken him further and further away throughout and yeah i just i think that the the performance of the, of the actor playing leo is is just it's, it's just fantastic it just there's such a just such a coiled energy to it and just the ability to move through so many different emotional states like early on in the film where he's sort of looking at remy asleep and you do get the sense that that he's got he's got a relate he's got a, an emotional connection to this person that he just doesn't understand, and it's it's there right off the bat. And then the politics of school just cause havoc. The way he carries the whole film on his face is just amazing. Yeah, I loved it. Loved that performance. It's really interesting because because physically, I think Leo looks a bit like a Spielberg kid. Yeah, he reminded me of Elliot from ET, and especially that moment where. You know, that in a complete, it's like almost the same scene, except one is a major blockbuster and the other is an art house way of shooting, right? But the scene where he is watching Remy play the musical instrument in the concert, there's that sort of slow zoom up into the eyes, which is very reminiscent of, of what Spielberg does with that slow zoom in for awe and wonder. You know, you're looking up and the kid is like looking at E.T. or whatever. in like awe. And there's this sort of, it very much mirrors that aesthetically for me. And I think as well, like it really leans into like Hollywood coming of age aesthetics in terms of them running through the cornfields and the flower fields and them on their bikes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah. know, like it's, it's, it's very happy to live in that space aesthetically, yeah. Yeah, and along along those lines, that the internal external spaces on the screen are shot and lit to emphasize those mood changes. It very much puts you as a viewer in the mood of sorrow and and mood of happiness and lightness. So, I mean, I wouldn't go so far as to call it on the nose, but it's it's very much using the sort of symbolism of light and dark and movement and stillness to portray the moods of the uh, of the characters. And I, you know, that's that's fine. I didn't you know I didn't find that annoying or anything like that. It worked. It worked you know, as well as, as those things do. The other thing that really struck me was how it it linked to this idea or it really put a lens on this idea of the loss of innocence. And it was just making me think, I was writing some notes yesterday, I was just thinking, you know, most of our loss of innocence is kind of takes place over time and slowly. It's like I, watching this film, I can't remember what it was like to be carefree as a 13 year old kid and not have any you know what I mean it's like that that feeling is long is long 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 gone and sometimes you can sort of nostalgically maybe project back onto it when you see a film like this right but in this case it's ruptured in an instant and you suddenly have you know have this moment where the kid is no longer a you know has to deal with grief he's no longer a child he has to understand or try and try and deal with his own human human emotions but also his his relationship with the mother of Remy, which is about somebody blaming you, the friend's death. And, and the, the, the mother comes into it kind of more at the end. And that sense of how she reacts to him is harsh at the beginning. And it leads to a something of a set piece ending, which I didn't quite buy. It wasn't quite in keeping with the rest of the film, I thought, the ending. But, but that's by the by. 
that whole sense of of where does where does innocence go and i think that the film does a really interesting job of giving you a dramatic moment of rupture so that the kid has to deal with it which is interesting to watch but also reminding you of yeah we all felt this way when we were with kids to a certain degree and then we go through you know for all of us in a very different way a, a, a sort of transitional phase into adulthood and that that innocence sort of seeps away you know but i think what i really liked about that was how weirdly does what we were sort of talking about at the start of the episode like into non-film stuff which is there are moments where he is able to be carefree you know like there's the snowball fight and then there's the end of term party where i think in other films you would see him unable to enjoy that with a kind of innocence of childhood you know which i think that's something one of the really interesting things is it's saying yeah he is kind of like really engaged in this period of grief and he has had his life ruptured there are still moments of joy possible. And that's something that seems increasingly difficult to hold on to as we progress into adulthood, is that these states exist side by side. And it is a loss of innocence, but it's I think a lot of films kind of say that it's a complete loss of innocence. Like you're gonna be you're gonna be, you know, a different person, as in unable to experience those things. And it's I, I love it because it just it was really there was a real friction there in terms of one minute he's just lashing out at school and the next minute he's having a great time. And it's like, well, yeah, that's that's kind of what what life is like. But we do, like you say, it, what do we cling on to as adults? Do we cling, we probably remember the humiliations and the embarrassments much, well, way more than we remember those times where it was just, it was just completely perfect. Yeah, and I think that it just sort of made me think about the narrative that we tell ourselves about our own childhood and how that that's turned us into the person that 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 we are and that in itself is is oftentimes just a narrative isn't it you know what i mean it's kind of like how we justify the way that we are as we get older and again i think one of the other things for for me that was was interesting was the way the film constructed that that sense of their potential relationship and what the labels of that were going to be for anyone on the outside because even before they get to the school the camera and the you know the director using the camera and the cinematography is very knowing about what it's telling us about or what it's offering us in terms of our interpretation of what the, this relationship could be in some ways you could say it may it may be constructing a sense of provocative representation to allow us to say oh that's that's very intimate you know what i mean there's something going on here but it but when you think about it it reminds us just how much we're socialized now to sort of put labels on things right oh they must be kind of you know homosocial in some way even if they're not understanding what it is and yet when they get to the school you know and the school is the obviously the the major socialization kind of context for all of us then suddenly the labels come thick and fast you know what i mean and they have to deal with them and it, it's just great because when you sort of deconstruct that, you can sort of say to yourself, yeah, we we put these things onto relationships and particularly, I think, boys and put the barriers on them very quickly. Like we label that and we say, and, and you know, depending what kind of parent you are or what kind of person you are, you'd be like, no, I don't like that. I don't want my kid behaving that way. And this is, as you're watching, you, you know, you can tell that the, the director is offering you the potential to put your own prejudices or your own socialized uh, way of thinking onto the, what this relationship could be. And that's that's really interesting. Yeah, I felt very similar watching it. Yeah, like, you know, kind of constantly questioning my own perception of what their relationship is. And yeah, I thought that was really, I thought that was really well done, you know, in the film. Yeah, and just, yeah, I kind of, I flinched when you said about the narratives we tell ourselves as children and that we tell other people about our childhood because I'm definitely going through a lot of that right now. And the film definitely made me think that, you know, in terms of like, how I have created a narrative of my childhood, which is not as truthful about my experiences that, you know, uh, as it really was. And it did make me think like, what's, how will this figure in Leo's adult life? Like, what will he do with this? How, where, where does he end up emotionally? And I think that because of the way the film moves through the relationship he has with Remy and then the relationship he has on his own and with the mother and, with the ice hockey as well, which I think is such a fascinating uber-masculine in terms of its iconography, certainly. Yeah, just just how, how how's he going to get on, you know? And there's a couple of lovely scenes with adults, adult men doing things which are 
just really touching, which didn't feel like that thing where you were saying, which I think is true, which is like, this is how men should be. Like, you know, it's a very realistic portrayal of masculine inability to express emotion and console and talk, you know, but there's a, there's a scene where he, yeah, he's with a doctor and there's a scene with like Remy's dad where you just feel like, yeah, men trying to do something which just doesn't come very naturally. And then the awkwardness and the discomfort that causes everybody when that happens, you know, that we, we as a society are still not, you know, we, we, we say we want men to be more vulnerable. We say more emotional, more tactful, but it's like when it actually happens and we see it, it causes a great discomfort. And um, that was, I thought that was really beautifully handled in the film. There's a social awkwardness about it. Mm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. When, when we sort of burst into tears in the middle of a, in the middle of the, the, you know, the table, everybody's just like, instead of sort of, you know, really rallying around, everybody's just sort of sat there quietly, you know, but you know, yeah, I mean, it's, it's very good on that. It's yeah. very good. Well, well to, um, t- to tell, to tell a personal story on that, to tell a personal story on that, that happened to me. Yeah. Recently where I was out with a couple of friends, one woman and one man and, you know, life was just, it just got the better of me. And instead of bottling it up like I used to, I just, we were in this like a greasy spoon cafe and I just burst into tears and was consoled by the woman who's a good friend. And I, I just, you know, just knew, I knew I was making the man uncomfortable and he just didn't know what to do. You know, it was, and I, and it was one, I was thinking to myself, like, oh, I shouldn't do this. I shouldn't, you know, because I'm making someone else uncomfortable. But it's like, Jesus Christ, I can't, I can't do that. You know, like, I just, I, I cannot do this anymore. But yeah, just that, that that sense of social awkwardness is so so loud when 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 you have those feelings and you're in a in a public space or you just you just you cannot get through stuff. And I just thought, yeah, that I wondered how the film would do that because there's a moment after Remy dies where you don't see the dad, and then again you have these assumptions. Oh well, this obviously what's happened is him and the wife have split up because that's what always happens. The grief is too much. The reminder of is too much, so they they're not together. But that's not what happens. And then yeah, it, it kind of it, it reveals something else, which I think is, is 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 was 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 much more interesting to see. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so should we should we move on to Godland? Both of these films are available to stream. So if you if you have li- if you're listening to this and you haven't caught them yet, then you can you can do that fairly easily. Uh, Neil, why don't you why don't you give us a your summary of uh, Godland? So Godland tells the story of Lucas, who is a young Danish priest, and he's sent to Iceland to kind of build a church for Danish exiles or, you know, sort of people people displaced by a, a volcano. So there's this kind of remote part of Iceland where people are going to end up because of a, a volcanic eruption. And it, he is sent to sort of bring God and uh, Christianity to this part of of Iceland and he's sent by sort of the the church elder on an absolutely ridiculous journey to to kind of to travel across Iceland to get to know the land and its people so that when he arrives in this kind of small uh, hamlet essentially tiny little place he's kind of familiar with 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 the place that that, that he'll be spending his life um so he kind of embarks on this journey and he's given a guide this kind of Icelandic sort of part Danish guide called Ragnar who's a kind of you know man of the land and Ragnar's team sort of help Lucas traverse the landscape to to this to this tiny little sort of cliff top hamlet and what's really interesting about the film I think is one is that it's not just about the journey so it's you know that the journey has its own symbolism and its own kind of thematic resonance but it's also about what happens when he gets there kind of after this journey. So it's got, the film is essentially split into two with the, 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 the journey to the, uh, to the small village and then life in the small village as the kind of church is built and sort of, you know, preparing for the coming of, of God and winter at the same time, which is kind of really interestingly sort of poised. The, the journey that they take is absolutely kind of grueling, but it's mostly grueling for Lucas so the the locals who kind of guide him you know feel they they are much less troubled by the the extremities and the sheer sort of hellishness of the the weather but lucas as as can be sort of imagined has a much more difficult time with with what with what was what was ahead of him and it takes a toll that 
sort of runs out across the remainder of the film. And what's really interesting is that even in this tiny little place, he sort of is greeted by a form of civilization. There is a patriarchal culture, there are sort of romantic interests, and there is kind of, you know, work to be done. And he's just completely changed by his journey and unable to be a member of this community in any kind of functional way. After I watched it, the film I really wanted to watch straight or sort of, you know, very close was Lucretia Martel's Zama, which I did. And it was really interesting because it felt very similar in its kind of tale of the these men in these places where they just, they have been sent and they think they're on a mission to do something grand. But what is slowly revealed is that they've basically been sent there to to get them out of the way. And the sort of the emotional toll that takes. It's interesting that in, in Zama, the, the main character, Zama, is sort of constantly referred to as a functionary. And here there's a kind of almost derogatory way that people call Lucas the priest. You know, they have a role which is not seen as very significant. No one really cares. You know, they are there to perform duties which keep the fabric of the community going. But there's no real investment in them as people or their role as of any significance, which I think is is kind of jarring when you get to this place and you assume that they're going to welcome God into the community in this kind of big grand way. And it's just, it's nothing like that at all. So yeah, it's it's a really beautifully shot film and kind of uses photography as a starting point as well. So Lucas is a photographer and, you know, in the, in the earliest days of sort of plate photography and it kind of carries the equipment needed to do that with him on his journey um and it just becomes such a obvious but powerful metaphor for the weight that he's carrying and that you know the kind of the, his sense of identity and a sense of like the importance that he places on his own journey but it's also kind of ridiculous and that's the last thing to say is it's a really funny film and like zama is just so tuned into the absurdities of these kinds of crusade or colonial projects as anything other than just yeah the folly of white men in power um that it's 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 kind of it's got it's got a really beautiful absurdist streak and the relationship between ragnar and lucas is where the film has its kind of emotional center and that becomes a really fascinating relationship because when when they get to the village ragnar stays um he stays to help build the church but also stays because he's actually seeking something which you know is feels very emotionally real but because of his life and because of the situation that they all find themselves in, it's completely impossible to for him to achieve. So, yeah, I hope that covers it. Um, Dario, what do you think? This film looks amazing. <laughs> I mean, it's it's Academy ratio, isn't it? It's four by three. But it, honestly, you would struggle to, to um, watch something that's more cinematic this year, I would say. And what was interesting, I was sat right at the front of the cinema and... So I was I was looking up quite a bit and I, I think I just moved because somebody was rustling popcorn. Um, but I was looking up and you get a lot of these shots, you know, again, it's all the vistas and the, you know, the the amazing landscape of Iceland. And But there's a lot of shots of water as well, you know, the rivers that they're crossing. There's this one scene where they're crossing a river and the water, they're actually cr- crossing at the top. It reminded me of the, the Fablemans, <laughs> that last scene where they said, you've got to put the horizon either at the top or the bottom, but never in the middle, you know what I mean? So the horizon was at the top and, <laughs> and all the water was sort of cascading down the screen. And it really felt like, you know, you were being sort of submerged in this water, just from a sort of, you know, as much as you can be when you're sat there in an auditorium. But it just made me think so much how, you know, when we talk about the idea of cinematic spectacle and and that's almost always associated with big budget CGI explosions. This is so formally rigorous. I mean, again, sometimes it's damning with fake praise to say every, every scene could be a, a painting, but it's like it is. Every scene is a moving painting. That ties in, I think, as well to the sort of the staginess of the of the photography in the in the film as as a theme. You know, that idea that you've got to kind of sit there for a long time and not make a move while Lucas sort of takes the lens cap off and then puts it back on, and he's got to he's got to paint their faces with this sort of white powder so that they they show up, and the the whole sort of falseness of that it, it, it's kind of ironic. You know, it, it doesn't do this explicitly, but the, but the 
the dichotomy between on the one hand you've got all this nature and and yet here's this guy trying to record it as if it was authentic and he's completely staging all of these scenarios which is is really interesting the cinematographer is called Maria von Hauswolf and I, you know I, I hadn't really seen anything that she'd done before but this is as good as as anything I've seen you know in terms of in terms of the camera positioning as much as anything else and it really is a, a, fa- a fascinating juxtaposition with the eight mountains when you when you see that film neil because again that's much that's landscape there's lots of mountains and and what have you but it's that's much more of a freeform camera that's sort of moving around a much more kind of classical sense of capturing the landscape which is reminded me a lot of westerns really where this is kind of very european you know it's very much in the sort of bergman you know or michael haneke t- sort of shooting of of the outdoors let's say but yeah, ju- just just beyond that, it reminded me of so many films. And again, I hate doing that thing where it's like, oh, if you like this, you'll like that. And I don't mean it in that way. But it, in terms of the encroachment of modernity and, and, you know, the idea of what photography symbolized, it really reminded me of unrest. Like here you have the, the you know, the colonial project. And a lot of that is to do with the technology that is becoming available in terms of the, the sort of passages of time, because you get these moments where the, the film almost pauses and does, it's not really, I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a variation of time lapse, but they shoot the same scene over periods of time to show that time is, is, is progressing. And it reminded me a little bit of a ghost story in that sense, that we're, that we're all sort of so minute in the vastness and, and sort of limitlessness of time, I think that's that was really interesting. And the stuff that you you said there about the craziness of this journey. And yeah, I think Zama is a really good shout, but it just reminded me of Herzog as well. You know, stuff like A Gear Wrath of God, that that type of stuff. You know, and even the piano, I think it's quite that there's some similarities to that as well, about sort of being transporting all of this modernist paraphernalia from one place to another, which is crazy. Yeah, and it, and and it's interesting as well because the the main character Lucas is not a very likable character, uh, as you've ha- you've highlighted that relationship with Ragnar is really interesting because you get the three positions, don't you? You've got the sort of Ragnar represents the sort of mythical man of nature, but he never sort of assumes that position of of sort of taking Lucas in hand and being nice to him, and you get and you get this you get this language barrier throughout. And you can, it's funny because through the film, they're both learning each other's language a little bit, but they're refusing to understand each other. It's kind of comical where they are, they are speaking the lang- each other's language, but they, they, they have this sentence that, that is like, I still don't understand what you're saying. You know what I mean? It's kind of like, it doesn't matter whether you've learned your language. I still don't get, I just, I'm not going to understand you. Cause it's kind of like fundamentally that Lucas sees Ragnar as a sort of you know, as a peasant, really, for want of a better word. And Lucas is very much a snob. But within Lucas, you get this character who is, who has this battle between religion, you know, and his, his crisis of faith. And it's not really even a crisis. He's just annoyed, I think, that God has sent him there. God in the form of, of the church at the beginning of the movie. But he doesn't really question his faith, like, overtly. It's more like, why have you sent me out here? I don't, I don't get it. This is awful, you know what I mean? <laughs> Which is kind of amusing, I, I found. But it's a film that I really, really admired rather than absolutely loving on an emotional level, especially after seeing The Eight Mountains, which I absolutely kind of adored. And I sort of really, it really spoke to me like on a, on a subjective level. Whereas this, I was just like, this is amazingly well done from start to finish. You know what I mean? Yeah, and it's interesting, isn't it? Because it did make me think of a number of films. And that's it made me want to watch some of those again, like Fitzcarraldo, particularly. Um, and uh, the Viggo Mortensen film from a few years ago, Huaha, which has a similar kind of ratio. That's really good. And again, kind of, yeah, just these really interesting ways of critiquing these kind of, yeah, colonial projects or the Crusades projects. The photography in this, apparently, the cinematography is 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 a nod to the photography. So it's the same ratio as the the photographs, you know, which works really really well. And there's a lovely moment, yeah, where you're watching him set up a shot for ages and ages. And there's a and there's a subject in it. There's like someone that he's traveling with, and then he's just like, no, and he just <laughs> just you don't even see him take the photo. There's a lot of those kinds of frustrations. And what becomes clear is that he's trying to impose a kind of order on this chaos and he just he just he he can't he can't do it i I also like the bit where he gets to the he gets to the village and he meets the sort of the father so 
yeah, he meets the the father of these these two these two daughters who has two daughters um, who's kind of raising, and he is the kind of the patriarch of the village. He's seen as the kind of the person who's sort of in cultural control of everything. And he just sort of says to him, like plainly, while he's kind of nonchalantly sucking on his pipe, just says, "Well, why didn't you sail here?" You know, and he he's like, uh, you know, like at that point, he's like, yeah, I mean, he knows that that was it was a ridiculous thing to have done. But again, he's kind of, and that's the position that changes. And he's driven by a sense of duty at the start. He's young and eager and his elder really sells it to him that he's the person to do this. And by the time he gets there, he's like, no, they just wanted me to, you know, I was probably the only person who could have survived it, you know, but it's a completely unnecessary thing. Yeah, he just, he's sort of he, he he shifted that, and that was what was interesting was that it was a film about bringing Christianity to a place where they kind of know what it is, and they've had a form of it, or they've had it in the, their old place, and they just want it to be part of their routine. They're not overly invested in. They're not trying. It's not kind of like taking it to a place where there's this kind of idea that they're sort of primitive natives who need to be cultured and civilized. It's like, well, we just need someone to give mass on a Sunday. You know, and his realization that that's all he is is devastating to him because it just, you know, he's done all of this and what's he done it for? Nothing. He's not appreciated. The father, you know, is worried that he's going to run off with one of his daughters, so would rather he wasn't even there at all. Takes a real dislike to him because of that. Like, there's, there's, there's so many kind of little bits of politics which are really interestingly handled. And then it does take a kind of shift. I won't, won't give a spoiler, but there are kind of things which, if you're attuned to the film, don't feel like a surprise, but are still quite shocking. One particular moment that's still quite shocking. And I think what's what's what shocked me about it was that it's between Lucas and Ragnar. And at that point, you've kind of realised that Ragnar is the most emotionally complex and interesting and actually probably sympathetic character that you come across, which is so unexpected from the first time you meet him, which I think is, is really well done. Um, oh yeah, and the other thing it reminded me of, there's a great, there's a great film, like a short film called Eki Mook, which is a, uh, by Nick Abrams. Um, it was for a Sigur Ross project. And it's got that really kind of slow time-lapse sense of nature and man together and the relationship between the two and how tenuous it is. And there's a great use of time-lapse in terms of the passing. Of, and that's what's really, that's the other thing I do want to say is like time passes in such strange ways in this film. Like, at the start, he says, you've got to get there before winter. You've got to get there before winter. And then they're, they're on this journey for what feels like four years. So many seasons, so many different types of weather conditions. And it changes overnight. And it's really disorienting. And that's probably true to what Iceland's like. I've no idea. I've not been. But it gives you the sense of, like, when are we? You know, and and how for the for the people who live there, they they traverse that perfectly naturally. And they, they leave it unscathed. But Lucas cannot cannot do it and then these other sort of lapses of time where we see where the kind of film steps out of its linear narrative time and just sort of spends time as you say with watching time change even though in the narrative time has not passed at all it's really beautifully done i love those moments there's one with his horse that he loves that disappears and then there's one at the very end where you think it's been 10 years but really it's only been in the narrative you know, a month or or two. And that's really well done in terms of, yeah, the, the, the sense of time. And again, just really cinematic, you know, just able to use cinematic time in really, really interesting ways. On the time thing, I think sometimes we get locked into the idea of, you know, there's linear storytelling and then there's chopping up linear storytelling and reorganizing it. But the basis is still linear. Whereas here it is very clever because it doesn't, it, it takes you out of the linearity almost entirely and then and then drops you back in. But when you're dropped back in, you're not necessarily in the same place as you were before. You know, so it's yeah, it's very it's very well done in that in that sense. And I guess, you know, again, that's another allusion to the sort of capturing of uh, the capturing of the image, you know, as a sort of that moment in time that is was one place it happened at that moment, but then is ephemeral is is both history and his future you know it's a very interesting sort of philosophical take on the idea of the photograph in that in that sense and there's some great yeah there's some so i mean again not to sort of overly spoil it but but as it gets towards the end you know the denouement of the church being built becomes this hilarious scene um of it all just going massively badly wrong and then turning very much you know from comedy to tragedy tragedy so it does sort of 
tap into those key elements of storytelling. And yeah, just a fascinating, fascinating piece of work. Like I say, I think I think Unrest is another good companion piece because you think, oh wow, what this is doing some really interesting things here without wearing it on its sleeve necessarily in a very ostentatious way, you know? Yeah, form and content seem very much like they're working with each other to kind of to you know, in, in, in productive ways. Yeah, that's a really good shout on rest, I think. I think that's a nice that's a nice nice companion piece. Great. Um so I think we'll we'll leave it there and uh head over to the bonus episode. So please come along and join us for some extra film chat. I know that Neil has uh, seen various things and so have I and we can we can sort of talk about those. So yeah, we've got a few more uh, episodes to come before the end of the season. Neil, you've got one coming up on a Japanese dystopian film called Plan 75, which I'm very much looking forward to because uh, that film looks great. And uh, there's an event that you're you're going to 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 compare a screening on that, which uh, would be great for the podcast. Yeah, also in the bonus, I'm looking forward to hearing about your uh, burgeoning friendship with Laura Mulvey. That should be interesting. But great to see you again. Good, good to talk. Always nice to do these uh, these episodes. It's always uh, always great fun to do the deep dives. Yeah, really nice. Um, yeah, great, great to chat to you. Um, a small tonic, given that it can't be in in person. Uh, and I'm looking forward to the bonus to find out about your misadventure to see, which I guess was Plan Seventy Five, which you you're planning. It to was, see. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so the plan, the plan failed <laughs> for Plan 75. Um, plan 76. Yeah, Plan 76 is next week. Yeah, so that that is it for this episode of Cinematologist Podcast. If you want to contact us in all the usual places, we are there. Our email is cinematologist at gmail.com. You can contact our handles on uh, Instagram and Twitter. Uh, yeah, any comments on the previous episode, indeed, on the on the um, audio documentary on cinema and psychiatry, or indeed this one, please get in touch. I've had some interesting, uh, interesting points to discuss on, on there, which is always nice. But until next time, this has been the Cinematologist Podcast. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.